Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A growing area of scholarship on the 16th and 17th centuries in recent years has been, to quote one historian, a surprising burst in beard studies. In a key article, Will Fisher studied two large collections of Tudor portraiture to conclude that between 1540 and 1640, or thereabouts, around 90% of male subjects were depicted with some sort of facial hair, and the beardless were generally clerics or very young men. Only four of Shakespeare's plays don't mention facial hair. Think of A Midsummer Night's Dream, Bottom's first question having been cast as Pyramus, Hmm, what beard were I best to play it in? And his own reply, I will discharge it in either your straw colour beard, your orange tawny beard, your purple in grain beard, or your French crown coloured beard, your perfect yellow. And the English strike on the Spanish fleet at Cadiz in 1597 was described as singeing the King of Spain's beard. Finally, there's John Bulwer in his Anthropometamorphosis of 1650, who noted, A beard is the sign of a man by which he may appear as a man. Shaving the chin is justly to be accounted a note of effeminacy. Woman by nature is smooth and delicate, and if she have many hairs, she is a monster. So it seems that beards, for men at least, were in. And joining me to discuss why is Dr. Eleanor Rycroft, a lecturer at the University of Bristol and the author of Facial Hair and the Performance of Early Modern Masculinity, published in 2020. Beyond the hirsute, her particular expertise is the early modern theatre. And what Ellie is working on at the moment is walking and gender and walking and performative walking and walking in the theatre and all sorts of interesting things. So clearly coming back to her another time to talk about that. But for now, we're going to talk about beards. Ellie, it is such a joy to see you and lovely to have a chance to talk about this. So beards, tell us about them. Why are they so important in the 16th and 17th centuries? The reasons why beards become important historically at different moments are quite local to the historical moment. So Christopher Alston Moore argues that there are four great ages of beardedness and that the Renaissance is one of them. My suggestion would be that the reason why beards become really important at this moment is because it's a moment of great upheaval, religious upheaval, economic upheaval, cultural, global upheaval. And beards become a facet of the body through which that change is negotiated and navigated. So there's a crisis in authority. And when there's a crisis in authority, often the focus falls on gender roles and what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman in order to negotiate that crisis. And for the Renaissance, that crisis becomes centred in part on the male beard and the meanings that it contains and is able to communicate socially. Okay, well, what are those? Why is the beard becoming 
a defining feature of being a man? Largely because of the beard's relationship to the humoral body. So the theory of the body is that men are largely hot and dry and women are colder and wetter, according to humoral physiology. And the beard is a visible sign of the male capacity to produce heirs, to produce children. The thinking being that during puberty, the male body heats up and a smoke rises in the body and pushes out the hair in the face. So the beard is actually a form of excrement, (laughs) of bodily excrement. But it also is the visual sign that a man is virile and fertile. So what does that mean for a man who shaved or a man who couldn't grow a beard? Did he count as less of a man? Absolutely. Men didn't shave, really, as far as I can tell. There isn't really the technology of shaving in the Renaissance, and Alan Withy writes really well about this. But of course, not all men can grow beards, So there would have been men whose masculinity was compromised or impugned by the fact that they were unable to grow this visual sign of masculinity. In terms of the thinking around the beard and its connection to masculinity, if you don't have one, you are by definition a beardless boy. So even if you are chronologically in the category of manhood, even if you're, you know, in your 20s or 30s, if you're unable to grow a beard, you are by definition a boy. And that obviously has huge implications for the fact that the patriarchal authority isn't distributed evenly among men, that there are some men who fall short of that expectation. In other words, is it that a man who can't grow a beard is thought of as being, I suppose, effeminate Or are you saying that it's just an association with being young, a youth? I think an adult male who can't grow a beard is nearly always considered in the realm of effeminacy. However, boyhood is its own important category. And it's quite easy to think of boys and women as being physiologically very similar in early modern thinking, but there are actually important differences too. And it's not just the effeminacy but also the childishness, the infantilism of the adult man who can't grow a beard, which is important in impugning or compromising his masculinity. Mm. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose this is a period in which the idea of gender is something that's quite slippery, that actually they think that you can move between the two, or at least particularly that women can move to suddenly finding out they're men, not so much the other way around. And... Maybe it'd be useful for us to talk about the kind of medical conceptions of the body that explain this. Yeah. And I think as well, particularly in certain phases of life, gender is more slippery. So particularly in puberty, I think things do become a bit more fixed, either in the early part of childhood or once you've reached adulthood. But the main theory is that men are hot and dry in terms of their humoral makeup and that women are colder and wetter, governed by different humours, which make them cold and wet. And this is an idea which is inherited from Galen and Aristotle. It's around before the Renaissance, but with the revival of the texts of classical antiquity, it becomes ever more important. There is a slipperiness because of the fact that you can control your humours or 
the different environments in which you find yourself might alter your humoral makeup. So that makes it more of a fluid category. And particularly in adolescence, for instance, women, their bodies also heat up. So they're at risk in some sense of becoming more masculine. So it's a very complex picture, but the humours and the fact that they're not just internal to the body, but also external, controlled by the non-naturals, such as diet, exercise, the air that you find yourself in, those things also influence your humoral makeup. So they would influence your gender makeup too. Okay. Now, thinking of beards then, one thing I love about this period is if you have a look at portraits, you see an extraordinary variety of different beards on show. Can you tell me about these? Some of them have different names, don't they? Yes. So you've got different types of beards. I think the one that most people associate with the Renaissance is the Peak Devant, which is the small pointy beard that a lot of Elizabeth's courtiers have. So Francis Drake and Walter Riley and Margaret Pelling speaks about this and she calls it a virile courtly style. And it's related really to the fact that Elizabeth runs her court as if all of her courtiers are suitors. Um, and this is a particularly useful form of beard, which would be associated perhaps with a man who is wooing a woman. So the beard being worn at court reflect that. But they're also a huge variety. We see that Peak Devon becoming smaller and thinner as we go into the 17th century. And we have the stiletto beard. So that's the one associated with Charles I and the Cavaliers. But there are also beards signify different types of occupation, different types of religious affiliation. So you have the swallowtail beard where it kind of splits at the bottom. That's associated with clergy more. You have my favourite one, which is the square cut or the spade beard, which is this really, really full, heavy beardedness, which is associated often with soldierly or martial masculinity. And we actually see interesting moments where real historical figures like the Earl of Essex change their beard in order to signify different types of manliness. And in his case, if we look at a miniature of him, we can see that he's wearing the peak de bomb, the nice pointy one. But as he becomes more and more powerful and more and more rebellious, he starts to grow his beard into more of a square cut beard. And that is to signify the fact that he's moving away from the court of Elizabeth and, of course, ultimately attempts to usurp her in 1601. My goodness, we can do a total analysis of people's standing in society and their political motivations and how they see themselves in terms of faith just by looking at their beards. Absolutely. And it's a really important way in which men are communicating their identity to the outside world. Catholic male identity is associated with hair removal. So the Protestant reformers grow really, really big, heavy beards to signify their difference from the Catholic, to signify the fact that they are reformers. It's really easy to trace because of what portraits tell us and how portraits have political agendas. So if more hair, growing a beard, is associated with authority and, I suppose, procreation, becoming married and having children, then do we see something like that shift that you mentioned with Essex from the little peak devant to becoming a square cut also to indicate literally sort of move from courtier to the status of a patriarch. Is that what it means? So if we see somebody with more hair, they're making a point about their kind of standing? 
to a degree, but as with everything in the Renaissance, it's about moderation. So the more hair you have, the more manly you are, but there is a tipping point. It suggests that you don't have access to grooming and barbering, which is a sign of civility. So we see that particularly associated with Ottoman masculinity. This idea that they have this encroaching empire is hyper hairy and overly hirsute and has kind of exceeded the bounds of a moderate civil masculinity. So it's a case of having enough hair, but not too much. This is fascinating. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yamaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, let's talk a bit about beards on stage, which is your particular area of specialism. So we see a lot of prosthetic beards, don't we? Why are they so common? Is it, I suppose, because you've got to play patriarchs? I don't know, I'm guessing here. Because theatre is a visual medium and hair, whether a wig or facial hair, is a very direct and clear way of communicating different types of identity quickly to an audience, particularly in an age where beards have such significance. It's even easier. You know, a black beard means this, a square cut beard means this. So you can just tell the audience really quickly what your character is, how old they are. And the other really crucial aspect of this, of course, is the fact that we have all boy playing companies during the period. So if adult masculinity is associated with the beard, then in order for boys to play adult men, they're going to have to wear prosthetic beards to signify that they are adult men. So those are various reasons why. And I also think it's something that Renaissance playwrights really enjoy playing with. You've got the ideology of beardedness, which says one thing, and then you've got the representation of beardedness on the stage, which is often much more playful, dissenting, resistant to the ideology, which takes the expectation and subverts it or does something different with it. So that's why I'm particularly interested in stage representation and how it relates to the dominant ideology around beardedness. Before we come back to the boy actors and their beardlessness, you just mentioned about the colour of a beard being important. I'm now desperate to get the sort of code so I can read all of these things. What else could we learn about things like black hair or yellow hair or whatever they might say? Black hair suggests that your body is too hot and that your hair has actually become burnt. And so this excrement that you've got is actually sooty or burnt. And that this is often a sign of a male body that's too hot and therefore aggressive, sometimes associated with kingliness, again, with a kind of Turkish or Ottoman masculinity. Black hair is partly desirable and partly excessive in terms of male definition. Brown hair is the ideal hair that you want because it suggests that you're kind of manly, but you've also moderated that manliness. Red hair is really interesting because it's common, but it's often associated a sort of deceptiveness. The red beard of Judas, Judas is famously said to have a red beard. So it might signify something a bit deceptive or trickstery about the male identity. And blonde hair is often associated with younger men and grey hair with old men. So I introduced this by talking about Bottom's question about whether he should have a straw-coloured beard or orange tawny beard or a purple in grain or French crown-coloured beard. So now we're starting to get some understanding of what he was talking about. Yeah, but what's really interesting about Bottom's list, his inventory of beards, is that it actually speaks to a bit of an older dramatic tradition that we come across more in civic drama, parish drama, before the regular playhouses open in London. And when we look at the inventories of amateur companies, we get much more symbolic beards. So he mentions purple beards. You might have a blue beard for Neptune, black beards for wild men. And so the colours become less naturalistic than I would expect to see on the London stages when they open. So one of the jokes about what Bottom is saying is that he's got this old-fashioned notion about what beard he should play the part of Pyramus in, which speaks to his lack of theatrical knowledge or the cutting-edge state of affairs. 
Oh, I love it when you find out the meanings underneath things like this, that we can understand what they were conveying with it, or what Shakespeare in this case was conveying. And the other thing that comes to mind is that the fashion for women at this time is very much to have blonde hair. From what you're saying, it might be that that is because brown hair is associated with masculinity and therefore the sort of paleness would be associated with women. Yeah, I think partly. I think it's a sign of youth and usefulness is more valorised in women for reasons of fertility than it is for men. I think blondness is a sign of youth and then that speaks to the kind of gender asymmetry between men and women where women are supposed to be subject to men in the way that children are, for instance. Okay, so going back to those beardless boys, in your book you say that male children were not necessarily perceived as unformed men during the early modern era, which struck me as a fascinating thing to say. Are you suggesting that boys are a kind of third gender? Yes, and I suggest that in line with Stephen Orgel, who makes that point in his book Impersonations. But we'd also say that that's a very broad statement and that there's lots of ways that that is nuanced in people's lived realities and experiences. So boys might be seen as a third gender, but then when you have an intersectional view of that in relation to class, the actual age of the boy, boyhood is potentially a really vast period in a male's life, which spans from infancy through to their early 20s. So what it means to be a boy changes through that chronological period and is also intersects with other categories such as rank, such as ethnicity, religion, to nuance that further. Interestingly, the World Health Organization, a few years ago, I think, said that the age of adolescence is now said to end at 24, which would mean we might have more in common in our ideas about boyhood with the 16th century than, say, the 1950s would have done. That's really interesting that we also define it as that quite long period. And I wonder what the basis of that is. I wonder if it's more to do with neural development rather than physiological development. But certainly we wouldn't find it unusual to see somebody in their early 20s referred to as a boy because they might not be expected to have a beard at that time. Also, they might have a beard, but they might behave in other ways that are boyish or infantile. It's quite a complex picture, but we can look to the beard as one of the main signs by which we try and determine what kind of male we're dealing with, whether it's a boy, a youth or a man. And the other thing is that boys are often referred to in the theatre as pretty, you know, you've got the beautiful, the ornamental child. I mean, is this basically just homoeroticism or is there something else going on here? So children are seen as decorative objects, particularly boys. And if we think about that classic Renaissance putty image, you know, the chubby toddler with the blonde hair in Renaissance paintings, and then the boy Cupid, who's related to that figure, I mean, it's difficult to say whether this is something related to ideas of beauty or, as you say, whether there is an erotic sexual dimension here. And the thing that's making them decorative is their smoothness, is their hairlessness, is their perceived availability as objects and potentially sexual objects, which is very disturbing to us and should be, <laughs> but is a kind of sign of the hierarchies in play in early modern society. And that to be a desirable object often means being subject to adult masculinity in some way. 
So a male child can be sexually available in a similar way to the way that a woman can or a servant can. And that's pretty nasty when we think about how we feel about children. But I think that it's definitely there. And I think it's the smoothness, the hairlessness, the chubbiness, you know, of the child, which makes them available to be decorative. Mm. But another fascinating point in your book was the idea that boy actors are common, but that they produce a kind of cultural anxiety. What do you mean by that? There's a lot hinging on male children or youths becoming responsible adult men. And there's no guarantee that this beardless boy is going to become the ideal bearded male ultimately. So during the phase of puberty, there is, I think, a great deal of anxiety about masculinity, about the male child. And if you think about it, there's a lot hinging on him doing that because the male child becoming an adult male is going to continue primogeniture, it's going to continue male domination over women, servants, beasts. It's going to ensure the continuance of patriarchy. It's going to reproduce it. But that depends on that generation of boys taking up the mantle of masculinity. Because there's no actual basis for male superiority, there's always this anxious moment that please let this next generation do what we want them to do so that we can continue our baseless power over everyone else. And I think it is worth sort of saying as well, this is the moment when we're moving into the age of colonialism and slavery. So it's not just about men over women, it's also about white men, particularly and increasingly over what's going to become the rest of the world in the ensuing centuries, if that's quite a big statement to make. So I think that's where a lot of that anxiety comes from, is that they need to become the kind of men who are going to continue patriarchy. You actually mentioned the first colony of England being Ireland, of course, and you talk about how Henry VIII's government imposes some restrictions on beard growing, if I remember that point rightly. Yeah, so a way of enforcing the domination of the English over the Irish is to enforce beard or hair removal among those who are being colonised so that there is an adult male-child dynamic or hierarchy set up at a hairy level. The beard really is doing a lot of work, not just kind of cultural work, but really the material work of power. So would it be too bold a statement, therefore, to say the marker of becoming a man is growing a beard? Because I've often thought before now that it was to do with when men married, and that was the kind of way that you could say they've entered manhood. I think those two things are inseparable, marriage and beardedness, because of the role that the beard plays in showing that a man can produce heirs. So there's this slippage between the idea of hairs and heirs <laughs> in literature. If you can produce hairs, you can produce heirs. So it's really a case, you know, six of one, half a dozen of another in terms of whether the main determinant is marriage or whether it's the beard and sometimes it's one and sometimes it's the other but they tend to go in tandem with each other again drama plays with that and tries to find moments of equivocation in those connections and play with them as part of its plot so how do we see this in the theater or where do we see it in the theater perhaps a good example is much ado about nothing what we have there is problematic hairiness and the question of marriage. Claudio wants to marry Hero, but he's called Lord Lackbeard by one of the other characters. So he 
either is imperfectly bearded or completely lacking in a beard, it's unclear. Because if you don't have a full beard, then even if you've got a little bit of facial hair, you still don't have a beard unless it's full. So his problems with marriage in the play with Hero can be partly attributed to the fact that he doesn't sport this sign of masculinity. On the other hand, we've got Benedict, who's got so much hair that it needs to be shaved off in order for him to woo Beatrice. And it's said that it's gone to stuff tennis balls. Then he's <laughs> shown to be unready for marriage because he still wants to hang out with his mates until he's gulled into the marriage with Beatrice. The fact that Claudio gets it all so dreadfully wrong is because he's still a boy in that play. The fact that Benedict is able to be tricked into marriage and to have what seems like quite a companionate relationship with Beatrice is because he's ready. And the fact he's got so much beard shows that he's ready. He's ready to procreate. He's ready to make little Beatrices and Benedicts. So that's quite an interesting example. We also have plays like Bertram in All's Well That Ends Well, where it's not entirely clear what sort of beard he has but presumably he has a beard because he's married off but he wants to go away to war and hang out with his mates rather than commit to his marriage so sometimes men might be bearded but they still might not be ready for marriage and those are the kinds of ideas that I think Shakespeare's playing with when we have young lovers like Claudio and Troilus as well they say that he's only got something like 23 hairs on his chin and when relationships fail, it's because they're still youth. They're not ready for marriage. Gosh, this is absolutely fascinating. And you suggest that the perfect beard of manhood is hard to find in theatre, that looking at Shakespeare's you know, great tragic heroes, they're missing hair or they have problematic facial hair. What do you think this reveals? This is the thing that really surprised me when I was doing the research, I thought, okay, I'm going to look at manliness now. Let's find all these brown beards of formal cut, perfectly shaped, not too little, not too big. And I could barely find an example on the stage. Of course, I'm looking at texts and I have no reference to the visual world of actual Renaissance theatre at all. So it could be that they have such normal, normative beards that nobody thinks it's worthy to comment on them. Or it could be that masculinity is only really interesting or primarily interesting to playwrights when it's either excessive or deficient. And that those are the types of masculinity that playwrights are interested in exploring. What I found really interesting is that if you take the real iconic roles like Macbeth, Hamlet, Coriolanus, arguably, the beards are problematized by Shakespeare. So Macbeth's beard, even though this is a play obsessed with masculinity, Macbeth's beard is never mentioned. Other people's beards are mentioned. The hair of dogs is mentioned in this play quite a lot. Similarly, in Hamlet, his beard, he talks about it being plucked from his face and blowing it away as a sign of his inaction and failure to exact revenge in the name of his father. So we're looking at men who are in the process of becoming various types of authoritative manliness. Hamlet moving from youth to adult or potentially from prince to king. Macbeth moving from soldier to ruler. 
And what I'm arguing is that at that moment, beards tend to disappear. It's like hair marks this limit of manliness in those plays because it shows men in the process of becoming different types of men. And for me, what that reveals is, as I said earlier on, that male superiority has no basis in reality. It's an assertion. It's like the prosthetic beard that bodies forth an identity to an audience, but it's baseless. It's just an assertion. It's just a claim. It's just a grabbing of territory, if you like. So I'm interested in how beards actually help to reveal the toxic masculinity of the early modern period and help us to even think through the fact that toxic masculinity today is baseless and has no claim in reality. And I suppose the other sort of set of beards and tragic heroes, I suppose, comes with somebody like King Lear and a silver beard. What did they make of that? Following on from the arguments of Alexandra Shepherd, I think she makes this claim very well in her book, Meanings of Manhood in Early Modern England. The phase of ideal manliness, a bit like this brown beard that I can't locate, is very brief before it takes a long time to achieve and then it wanes very, very quickly. The moment a grey hair appears in the beard, then manhood is already on its way out and you're going into an ageing masculinity. And Lear's interesting because Shakespeare's really specific about ages in it. And Lear has a silver beard and is a geriatric man, whereas Kent is something like he's in his 50s. He's described as having a grey beard and he still has sort of more claims to authority than Lear does. But it's also a double-edged sword because grey hair signifies wisdom and the accumulated experience of manliness, which can be passed on to the younger generation. But equally, it signifies the degeneration of manliness and it can be a cause of derision. So I suppose this really takes us to the heart of this idea of masculinity being something that is anxious and is easily disrupted, that it's hard to achieve and then it's hard to hold on to. Again, related to this anxiety about the younger generation and how fragile masculinity is as a basis for a claim for authority over anybody. And it really is a case of just asserting that that's the case, that my beard has all of these meanings and hoping that everybody falls in line. But there's always the possibility of disruption. So the other thing that was interesting when I was looking at these ideal beards was how much femininity and servitude and ethnicity and bestiality crept into those representations. It's like the boundaries of the beard itself are always being encroached upon, diminished, eroded, and that masculinity is always under threat, that this sign is permeable and prosthetic as well, which a false beard points up perfectly. I was thinking about the recent announcement that Ian McKellen's going to play Hamlet, and from everything we've just been saying, or you've just been saying about sort of liminality of masculinity in adolescence and then how that changes in old age, it almost seems that that's not so much just an age-blind, we're almost talking a gender-blind casting there. I really find it difficult to comment on that without seeing what they're going to do with that role and how he's going to perform it, and particularly what that role is going to look like. It does seem unusual to me because Shakespeare's so specific about Hamlet's age, or rather 
he's either 16 or he's in his early 30s. And there's an equivocation in the text around that. But those do quite interesting things, both those readings. Not saying that Ian McKellen's performance isn't going to do another interesting thing, but age seems to be very important to what the point that Shakespeare seems to be making about Hamlet's ill-formed manliness. On the other hand, age is also a degeneration from manliness and there is a connection with effeminacy in early modern thinking. So, you know, it's, yeah, swings and roundabouts. I suppose another example of this might be if we think about how, you know, Henry the Fourth Parts 1 and 2, what do you make of him in this sort of interpretation? I think it's really interesting that the how phase, as I think of it, is this period of masculine indeterminacy associated with youth. So how could go either way? He could either yoke all of this energy, all of this aggression, into becoming Henry V and becoming this king who is forthright and will go to war with France. And he's actually quite toxic as well in terms of his masculinity, arguably. Or he will just remain a rebel and he may turn against the state. He may become an insurgent. And that's clearly his father's fear. So it's a really good way of thinking about how the phase of adolescence is one in which a man can go either way. He's either going to use that hyper-masculinity in the service of continuing patriarchy, or he's going to turn it against patriarchy. So that's a really interesting phase for me. And also you kind of see that going on with soldiers. So soldiers emerge as this figure on the early modern stage who never turn, or rarely, (laughs) turn their aggression into useful service. They can come back from war and they're often sort of beggars or vagrants or people who work against the national interest. Not always, but that is a typology that we see in terms of martial masculinity. Well, Ellie, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. We are not going to look at a portrait or go to the theatre or read any of these plays in the same light again. You've completely revolutionised my understanding of it. And I had read your book and even still there are layers of meaning that have come out from this conversation. So I'm so grateful to you for this. And if anyone wants to know more, I recommend going to pick up a copy of Facial Hair and the Performance of Early Modern Masculinity. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – A house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. A house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder.
To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.